Welcome to episode 120 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jinstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Free product giveaway alert. Keep listening. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every Every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. 
I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 120 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I am doing great. Did you order anything on Amazon Prime Day? I did not. <laughs> I didn't I didn't order a single thing. Isn't that funny? Did you know that it happened? Well, I, yeah, I saw that it was happening, but I don't know. I didn't need anything specifically. I didn't, you know, I was fine. <laughs> I do the same thing every time it happens now. I get on, I see they'll have some deal for some gadget. And I'll be like, oh, I really want this. And it's marked down. But now it's at the point in society and Amazon and shopping that there's always like the knockoff version. Right. That oftentimes has like way better reviews and is way cheaper than the mainstream version. So what always happens with me with Amazon Prime is I I find something I want, it's marked down, but then I realize, oh, I could get this knockoff version that's actually cheaper than the Prime price anyway. And I could just think about it later. That happened yesterday with the Roomba for example. That's so funny. I'm so skeptical of some of the reviews. I hate to say it, but I think sometimes some of those reviews are not real. Oh, no, they very often are. But I'm like a review sleuth. Like I feel like I can tell. And then some of them... You're right. You can tell because they have like similar wording and the phrases are weird. And Yeah, because I've been contemplating buying... I'm so obsessed. I do have like a one version of a knockoff Roomba. Do you have one of those? I do not. I'm so obsessed with it. It's like the perfect little pet. It's like a little pet <laughs> that doesn't make a mess. It cleans up the mess instead and it like runs around and it does stupid things like gets stuck and runs into walls and I think it's adorable. We actually saw a lawnmower version of one. We were driving down the road the other day. We're like, what is that? What is that? That sounds really dangerous. <laughs> I know. In somebody's yard was like a, a lawn mowing machine that was going around. And I'm like, how did someone not even just steal that? I don't know. But- it was just out there just mowing the grass. That's so funny. It was funny. We laughed and laughed. I guess I totally forgot when I was growing up in our pool, we had, you know, the pool cleaner. Right. We have one of those. We called ours Darth Vader. Oh, that's funny. I remember there were ones that looked like stingrays and I was like, nope, I would never get in a pool with a fake stingray. <laughs> <laughs> I like the look of that one. I want one that looks like a fake stingray. Oh, it scares me. I was going to say, we did make an offer on the house. Oh, congratulations. And then they accepted. We had a couple of rounds back and forth, but we're closing the end of August, which is very exciting. So eventually I'll be coming to you from my little podcast studio. <laughs> I'm so excited about that. I'm really excited. You got to make it red. I'm telling you. It's not going to be red. The neighbors are not going to watch me glow from the front of the house. <laughs> Turn on the juve lights. <laughs> nope. 
and have like, oh, it'd be even better because you could have, like I said, the soundproofing, but maybe there'd be like this weird muffled sound coming from it. Yeah. Not going to happen. Nope. They're like, who are these weirdos that bought this house? Yeah. Anyway, I'm very excited about that because where I record right now, like we just had to postpone recording because the washing machine was still going. So I'm in the room. It's like the multi-purpose room. It's the laundry room. It's my husband's office, my office. I have to turn the heater and the air off because it blows too loud. So <sighs> I'm looking forward to being in a room that is not where the washing machine is, not where the cat will bring in treats, not where <laughs> I'm doing the laundry. So it's so exciting. Coming soon. Yep. Oh, I had another interesting moment this week as well. What was that? It's really, really interesting. You know how they say we see everything all the time, but we only pay attention to what we are, what our brain is, you know, wanting to pay attention to. Right. We have to tune out a lot of the the stimuli in our environment just because we couldn't deal with it all. Yeah. And our brain naturally gravitates to what it's looking for, which is a reason that I think it's so easy to get stuck in either like amazing, wonderful mindsets or health threats (laughs) where you're only seeing like the bad things because you're looking for them. Right. So for listeners, we had a potential sponsor approach us recently for a product. And I was shopping at Whole Foods the other day, Jen. I didn't even know that product existed before they, you know, pitched us for the podcast. And then I was walking at Whole Foods yesterday and I I saw it and it was like huge and it was like this huge display. I'm sure that display was always there, but (laughs) I never saw it until yesterday. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like when you shop for a car and then you see that model of car everywhere. I go in that line pretty much every single night. I pass by that section every single night. I clearly see it every single night, but I didn't even realize it until my brain was like looking for it. It was just really really interesting to me. Yep. Yep. All right. So to start things off, we have some listener feedback with a slight, simple question at the end as well. This comes from Roberta and the subject is episode one. And Roberta says, hello, ladies. My friend had been doing a version of intermittent fasting and came across your podcast. I was not interested in doing it because I didn't like the idea of being hungry most of the time, but my friend told me to listen with an open mind And after listening to episode two, I was convinced and have been doing it consistently and plan to make it a lifestyle. The hardest thing was when I listened to the episode where you spoke about artificial sweeteners and no drinking diet Cokes. I was hungry and not losing much the first few days, but when I learned about no diet Coke, I've been losing consistently and not feeling the hunger pangs to the same extent. I am so happy to be eating what I want, fasting, and drinking so much water. Today, I ordered the minerals for my water that you recommended in your show notes. I'm looking forward to reading both of your books and listening to all the podcasts. They are motivational, informative, and entertaining. I love that you two are doing this podcast. Now to my question. Where's episode number one? From what I see, the podcast starts with episode two, yet you spoke of the previous episode and I want to hear it. Thanks again for your podcast. I love hearing and learning from you. All right. So I thought that was a great feedback from Roberta. And first of all, the success with cutting out the Diet Coke. Did you have thoughts about that, Jen? Well, you know, I always love to hear that kind of feedback because y'all know (laughs) that I really think it makes a huge difference and that it matters. So I'm always happy to hear that someone has embraced the clean fast. And not only that, but has discovered that it makes a life-changing difference. I mean, that was just my experience as well, but I've heard it from thousands of people. So 
I'm glad that we're spreading this message and thank you for sharing that, Roberta. And then as for episode one, we actually do get that question a lot. So we had slight technical difficulties with it. It's basically like the lost episode. (laughs) It could be out there somewhere in the universe, maybe. I guess, I don't know, with all of our recent conversations about like reality and quantum physics, maybe it does still exist. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) People aren't really missing much. So episode two is where you start out, just to clarify. Correct. All right. Shall we go on to our next question? Yes. This is from Carlene, and the subject is lack of bad breath. Hi, Jen and Melanie. I have been doing IF for almost five months now and also joined two of the Facebook groups. I have seen a lot of people mention the bad breath when they are in ketosis. I haven't had that issue. Does that mean I haven't been in ketosis? I mostly do 16-8 during the week and even longer on weekends and recently started one meal a day this week. Am I not doing the fast long enough, or is it that not everyone gets the bad breath problem? All right, Carlene. So I blame you, Carlene, for crazy insomnia I had last night (laughs) because I was researching this question, and I found this epic study, and I read it for hours and hours, and then I was so excited to talk about it on the podcast, and I could not sleep. It was also a full moon, so who knows? I'm excited to talk about this question, Jen. It's not the flipping the metabolic switch paper, is it? No. Okay. Now I'm curious about that. It's the best thing I've ever read about intermittent fasting. (laughs) So I found this amazing study. It's from 2015, and it is called Acetone as Biomarker for Ketosis Buildup Capability, a study in healthy individuals under combined high-fat and starvation diets. Okay. I'm just going to pick apart this study because it provided a lot of very fascinating information. And I also want to discuss the actual study that they did and the results that they found. So in the actual literature, which I will put a link to this in the show notes. So if you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 120, that's where you'll find the show notes. And I will put a link to this study there. And so one of the first things they talk about is when you go into a state of ketosis, that there are three types of ketones that the liver produces under a state of ketosis. That is acetoacetic acid, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and then from beta-hydroxybutyrate, there's a further enzymatic process that can happen, which creates acetone. And acetone is actually the version that is normally present in the breath. Because those first two that I mentioned, they're actually water-soluble and they're, you know, pretty much distributed throughout the blood and body, but the acetone actually does enter the airway. So it's slightly different. And so when people are talking about having keto breath, which oftentimes it's like an acetone type smell, like nail polish remover, other people perceive it more as like a sweet smell, but that is coming from the acetone. So, and then something else that the study did clarify right at the beginning was that there are two basic types of ketosis. And we talked about this pretty recently. I don't think we gave them actually the correct labels. So this is a nice little follow-up. Basically, they were talking about how there is nutritional ketosis. So that is ketosis that is achieved via diet, particularly lower carb diets, often with higher fat counts. And then there is fasting ketosis. Other people might call it starvation ketosis, but in this, they call it fasting ketosis. And that is obviously ketosis that you reach via fasting. So those are the two types of ketosis that you can quote be in. In both states, you're producing ketones. Just the mechanism of action of getting there is slightly different. Something else they were pointing out that was really interesting was that different 
like lifestyle factors can affect how easily the body creates ketones. So this was some things interesting. So I'll ask you, Jen, see if you can guess. Do you think lower BMI or higher BMI made you more likely to produce ketones? Huh, that's interesting. Let me think about that. I would tend to think I could make a case for either way. I am going to guess lower BMI because the people with a lower BMI are probably more metabolically flexible just because of the way they've lived their life. Correct. <laughs> Yay! Ding, ding, ding. Oh, I'm excited. We can play the game. There's a, there's a few other ones. Okay, so do you think people with higher or lower metabolisms create more ketones, more likely to? Well, that's also a really good question because we know that your metabolic rate's faster if you're bigger, just in general. That doesn't mean that you're losing weight really fast. But So I guess I'll say the higher BMI. That the higher BMI was more ketones or less ketones? Right. So ask me the question again. So do you think you're more likely to generate more ketones if you have a higher or lower metabolism? Lower metabolism. No, it was higher metabolism. Okay. All right. They correlated having a lower BMI to a higher metabolism. I guess the part that I was talking about was that larger people have a higher metabolic rate. It increases based on size. Yeah. I think that's a little bit complicated because I think it does increase based on size. So you'll have a baseline higher metabolic rate, but then I think that metabolic efficiency and like the actual like metabolic rate beyond that from, you know, like non-exercise thermogenesis or- Yeah. It's not proportional is that, I guess is what you're saying. Yeah. 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 So like, I think like a, the basal metabolic rate, a thin versus... So if we take two people like in a fishbowl with like no extra influences and they're just two different weights, the people with a higher weight, the basal metabolic rate, if both of them are just not doing anything, just sitting there and presumably you know fasting or maybe eating the same things, the higher weight person will have a higher metabolic basal rate. But then beyond that, I think the lower BMI person could much likely have a higher metabolism because of a better functioning metabolism. The next one, do you think that exercise leads to more or less ketones that you can measure? Well, you know, that's an interesting question too. I think your body would produce more ketones because you're tapping into your fat and producing them, but whether they are hanging around to be measured or whether you're using them. So I could see that either way as well. I could see there actually being fewer around to measure because of the exercise. Yep. You nailed it. Exactly. I feel so good. I know. They're saying that exercise reduces measurable ketones because the body's using them. Correct. Yeah. And see, that's what we know. We know that an efficient body uses the ketones that it makes. And so people who are really, really healthy are likely to have fewer ketones floating around in their blood or in their breath or in their urine. And it's not because they're not making them. It's just that they're not hanging around. We're, we're good at using them. Exactly. Okay. So now are you ready for the actual study that they did? And do you want to kind of continue the guessing game of what they found? Sure. <laughs> okay. So it's a little bit of a weird setup and I had to read it like over and over and over to figure out what they actually did, but I think I got it. It was only 11 healthy individuals, but it was a crossover study. From reading it, it was pretty well constructed. They did it for three weeks with three different diets and they did, you know, random people, different diets to compare. But basically the way the study was set up was on any given week for one of the diets they were testing, 
And this was not calorie restricted, the diet. So for the first five days, the participants would follow diet A. And diet A was a, quote, low-fat diet, but it was 29% fat. And then it was, quote, high-carb diet, and then had protein. So kind of like a typical, I think, American diet, sort of. So that was for the first five days, kind of like as a control. And then on the sixth day, they would do one of three diets. They would either do that same diet, the high-carb, low-fat, 29% fat diet, or they would do B, which was a higher-fat diet, but still with carbs in it. So it was like a 79% fat diet, but moderate carbs, moderate protein. Or they would do diet C, which is a 90%, so super high-fat diet, and it was low-carb. So that was on the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, man, I feel like the Bible, you know, where they're like, and on the seventh day, he rested. Yeah. On the seventh day was their starvation day. That's what they labeled it. Um, so that was their fasting day. And why I really love this study, because it basically turned out to be like a one meal a day type pattern as far as testing, because on the sixth day, they ended their meal at 10 p.m., which is pretty late, Jen, especially, you know, in the literature. They ended their meal at 10 p.m. And then they fasted all the way until 7 p.m. the next day. And then they tested ketone levels all the way. So the last testing that they did was 21 hours fasted. So the final testing every time they did this diet was at 21 hours fasted. That was after following five days of the 29% fat, high carb, moderate protein diet, then one day of the weird fluctuating fat diet, and then the IF day. So I know that sounded sort of complicated, but are you following a little bit what that looked like? Yes. Okay. Which is hard because I'm not an auditory learner, so I'm trying to remember. (laughs) Yeah. So what I'll do for listeners, there is a picture in the study. I'll put it in the show notes or at least put a link so you can kind of look at the picture because looking at the picture kind of helps. So here we can play the guessing game. What do you think they found as far as breath acetone levels? So for the first five days, everybody did the same thing, and that was a 29% fat diet, which they called high-carb, moderate protein. So the 29% fat, high-carb diet, that's what we'll call it. Okay. And then they did one day where they did diet A, B, or C. So diet A was that same diet, the 29% fat, high-carb diet. Diet B was a 79% fat. So they ratcheted up the fat, but they still kept in some of the carbs. So they called it a 79% fat and then it was a moderate carb diet. And we're keeping protein like basically equal in all these. And then diet C, which was a super high fat. So 90% fat, but they made that also low carb. So the three options are diet A, 29% fat, high carb. Diet B, 79% fat, moderate carb. Diet C, 90% fat, low carb. Okay. Okay. And they did that for one day. And then they did fasting for almost 24 hours. They did it for 21 hours. So which of those diets do you think at the end, after everything, the participants were creating the most ketones? Do you think they were creating the most ketones after the 29 diet A, which was the 29% fat high-carb diet? Diet B, which was the 79% fat moderate carb diet, or diet C, which was the 90% fat low carb diet? Well, I would guess it was the C people because they were putting less carbs into their glycogen storage on that sixth day. Actually, I'll ask you to put them in order. 
Well, then I would say CBA. That's what you would think. That's what I would have thought. But guess what they found? And it was very consistent. Like, it's really interesting because you can look at the levels. They list the levels of each person because there's only 11 people. Almost the exact same. And this very similar ratios for every single person. Well, was it ABC? No. Okay, well, then I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It was BCA. So the people who had the day with the 79% fat, moderate carb, and then they went into like a 24-hour, almost 24-hour fasting, they produced the highest ketones, followed by the people who did the 90% fat, so super high fat, very low carb, they produced slightly less. It was still high, but it was slightly less. And then the people who were doing the 29% fat, high carb diet, theirs was substantially less as far as producing ketones, but they were producing ketones. Yeah, see. I wanted to bring in that last point because, so the people who had did that first thing where they did diet A the whole way through, so they had carbs basically the whole way through, they weren't high fat. Regardless, after 21 hours of fasting, they were producing ketones, which reason I'm bringing that up is because, for example, we got a, another question recently from Grace, and she said, hi, I've started IF two weeks ago. Love you and Jed's podcast so much. I'm just wondering, could you send me some research papers or studies to show you can enter ketosis after three to four weeks of IF, even if you're eating carbs during your eating window? I've had some people tell me this is impossible. So interestingly, Grace, in this study, I mean, they weren't even going weeks. They weren't even fasting for weeks. They just did Five days of it. 21 hours. Yeah, just 21 hours. See, that surprises me. I would not have guessed that they were able to get into ketosis that first 21 hour. (laughs) I wouldn't have thought that would be enough, but I guess it is for them in this study. That's awesome. I was really surprised by that. I was like, oh, wow, they all very, very interesting. Were they healthy participants before they started? This was 11 healthy individuals. They maintained moderately sedentary lifestyles. But they weren't like obese or type 2 diabetic or... No, they're healthy. Honestly, I think it's like one of the best types of people to look at because they're not crazy exercisers. They're not overweight. They're not unhealthy. They're just healthy, but they're not also, you know, they're, they're sedentary mostly. I wonder if they'd have used a group of people who were like overweight or obese, if they would have found ketones. You know, a lot of people who start intermittent fasting from day one, like me, I was obese when I was starting. And so could I have gotten into ketosis at hour 21? I'm not sure early on. That is a good question. So just because these people did, and I'm glad they did, but I'm not sure that everyone could expect that at hour 21, everybody's going to be producing ketones. Yeah. Especially since, as we talked about before, the study talked about how those with a higher BMI tend to generate less ketones. Right. And something else for Grace's question, just to further answer her question about, can you achieve ketosis with carbs? For example, this study, I was saying at the beginning how it talked about the difference between nutritional ketosis and fasting ketosis, and it does make the point that, I'm just going to quote it. So it says that, for example, there is that nutritional ketosis that's achieved through a low-carb diet, and that is on calorie maintenance diets. So even where calorie intake equals energy expenditure, people can generate ketones if they're doing a low-carb, high-fat diet. But then the fasting ketosis, they say that... Elevated ketone levels are a natural metabolic response to negative energy balance where calorie intake is smaller than total energy expenditure and the body burns stored fat to produce the needed energy. Now, I know that one meal a day doesn't automatically 
produce calorie restriction, but I think it does for a lot of people. And if you're taking this logic that calorie restriction in general leads to a state of ketosis, especially fasting ketosis, then you can see how you can definitely get into ketosis even with having carbs in your eating window. A few other little takeaways from the study that I wanted to point out was, so they did note, like I said, that all of these dietary approaches did create ketones. They noted that the fasting, so that that last day, that starvation day, significantly ramped ketones. Like the ketones just jumped through the roof. So I think that really does speak to the power of fasting for entering the ketogenic state. In this case, diet B was the best. But even the participants that were doing the high fat diet to create ketosis, when they went into that ketogen, when they went into that fasted state the next day, substantially ramped up. So I think that was a nice takeaway. I also really liked the study because it wasn't calorie restricted. So I think that's a really nice little factor that was controlled for. They had two theories as to why diet B, which was, you know, lower in fat than diet C, why it created higher ketone levels. And I got really excited because I read this and I came up with these theories in my head. And then I read the paragraph and they had the same theories. And I was like, oh my goodness. It was like the best moment ever. (laughs) It was so exciting. So see if you can come up with them too. So they have two theories. Okay. Well, one theory might be that more carbs ramps up your metabolic rate. Just because I know that when I eat a lot of carbs, I can feel myself getting hotter. Is that one of the theories? No. Okay. Well, that would be one of my thoughts as to why, because I do feel like that when I eat more carbs, I can just feel that I'm hotter, (laughs) depending on what it was. Like if I have a whole lot of rice, I can just feel, that sounds nuts, but you know, my husband will touch me and be like, wow, you're hot. While we're talking about it, they actually listed what the people actually ate if you're curious. Okay. What were they eating? So diet A, which was the quote, low fat, high carb diet, they had coffee. What's really interesting is, you know, we think that coffee supports ketone production, but that diet was the one that showed the least amount of ketones. They were also having a whole lot of carbs. So I wish that they had all either had coffee or not had coffee because I don't think that, I mean, the coffee actually should have helped them deplete their liver glycogen more quickly. So maybe it would have been even worse if they hadn't had the coffee. You know, it's hard to know. I'm really surprised that they didn't control for that, that they gave coffee to one and not the others. That's very odd to me. That is so weird. But then again, I guess we can keep in mind that all the participants did do diet A every week. So they all were having coffee for five days. (laughs) Okay. It was just that sixth day where if they switched to a higher fat version, they didn't have coffee on that day, basically. That's the difference. I wish they'd had the coffee anyway, though, just because coffee is just such a variable. Me too. So for diet A, what they were eating was pork breakfast sausage, which I think that's like one of the higher fat things they had, and yogurt, Uh, chicken alfredo with fettuccine and broccoli, sesame noodle with vegetables, an apple, sweet and sour chicken, white rice, pecans, steak and noodles. So basically very mixed all around. The diet B, which was the 70% fat with a moderate carb intake, moderate compared to diet C, but not really moderate compared to diet A. So it was breakfast sausage, pine nuts. Those are really high in fat, by the way, guys. American cheese, avocado, cream cheese, almonds. So their only carbs are really coming from the almonds and the avocado. I mean, not a whole lot of carbs. And then diet C was 
sausage, avocado, heavy whipping cream, pecans, butter. Ugh. <laughs> that makes my stomach hurt. Oh, wait. I lied. Not butter. Not butter. The Smart Balance buttery spread, which is not butter. <laughs> and pine nuts. Lots of fat. <laughs> yeah, that is a lot of fat. I do not want to eat 90% fat. Yeah. So back to their theories, though. Do you have some other guesses about what their theories were about why? So they were only measuring the breath ketones. Is that right? They measured everything. They measured blood, urine, and breath. And that was the takeaway was that the breath pretty consistently correlated to the blood. Same with the urine. Any other ideas about their theories? Since I haven't read the study, I would probably need to read it for it to come to me because I'm just going on what you're telling me. So I might be missing something that would have given me the aha moment. I don't know. So their first theory was that when they were producing excess ketones, like the more ketones they produced, the more their heart, muscle, brain started using the ketones. So less ketones showed up. So basically, maybe diet C actually was creating more ketones, but they were being used more. Well, that's a lot of conjecture. (laughs) I don't know how you could go from we measured fewer, so there must have been more. Well, that was the first thing I thought, actually, when I read it. Because I was thinking, oh, well, maybe they were generating more, and so they were becoming more efficient, so they were using them. I know, but it is kind of crazy. It just seems like such a short time for that efficiency to develop. That's why, I don't know, because I can't come to the conclusion that because they were making more, they used them all up so fast we couldn't measure them. Because this is the very beginning of when they would be, I don't know. I do agree as well. That seems like a short time. If they had been like in ketosis for months and years, and I would say, yeah, but I don't know. I'll read the actual direct quote so we don't misquote anybody. So that first theory was that, quote, excessive ketone production may induce more ketone utilization as a fuel for the heart, muscle, and or brain. So that was their first theory. And they actually linked a study that actually, I guess talks about that, which I didn't even read that follow-up study. And then the second one was very interesting. It was that perhaps when there is excessive ketones, that ketone production shuts down. They're not making more because they have so many. Yeah. So the quote, so that we do not misquote anybody, was, quote, ketone production may shut down. <laughs> That's what I just said. When excessive ketone levels are produced, since the ketone level in breath is reflective of ketone level in the blood, and these levels are a consequence of production versus utilization, the cause of the most dominant factor responsible for diet C's outcome remains an open question. They do say, however, it is worthy to note that a reduction of fat in diet to that lower ratio that they did in diet B may lead to a ketosis state that is at least as efficient as the ketosis buildup at a higher-fat diet, which eliminates the cumbersome ultra-high-fat needs in the ketogenic diet. Basically, their takeaway was maybe we can get all the benefits of nutritional ketosis with a higher-fat diet while following a diet that's actually lower in fat intake so people don't have to go super high-fat. But then also, I think what their takeaway, in my opinion, should have been was that, oh, I mean, fasting really creates the most ketones here. Maybe we should just completely for Why don't you just fast? <laughs> I know. But of course, they were focused more on the, the dietary aspect. But my takeaway was that fasting for the win for ketosis 
Exactly. I think so, too. And, you know, Grace, when she said that, you know, people think that you can't eat carbs during your eating window and then get into ketosis. We hear that a lot. We used to hear it more. Like people would get really angry if you told them that you could. They'd be like, no, that's not true. If you eat one, you know, whatever, it'll kick you out of ketosis for three weeks or whatever. I don't know. I'm just making that up. But that's because if you're eating all the time, you know, if you're following like a keto diet and you're eating all the time, you're getting a lot of your ketones from the food that you're eating. Like we talked about the nutritional ketosis, you're eating the foods and your body is turning the fat you're eating into the ketones versus if you're fasting and you're in the fasted state, your body is taking them from your stored fat, which is what we want to encourage. You know, people really have a hard time understanding how fasting could get you there because like I said at the beginning, I'm really surprised that they were able to do it in 21 hours. You know, the people in the group with the higher carb content, I'm surprised they did it in 21. I would think it would take them longer to deplete their stored glycogen, but I'm glad that they showed it in this study. The paper that I mentioned at the beginning is really a great one that I would recommend everybody reading. If you're very interested in ketosis and what happens with fasting, it's called Flipping the Metabolic Switch, Understanding and Applying the Health Benefits of Fasting. And this is a this is the most comprehensive review paper of fasting that I've seen. Mark Matson is one of the authors. It was in obesity in 2018. And it is absolutely just the goldmine of all things fasting, all the research. They put it all together. They synthesized it. They talk about it. But they really do a great job of explaining how fasting gets us into ketosis. And they talk about liver glycogen depletion and all the stuff that we've told you all along, the same conclusions that they came to with all the research they've done and looking at all the research out there. So you know, anybody who is, you know, a naysayer or has a naysayer saying you can't get into ketosis with intermittent fasting if you're eating carbs, read this paper, Flipping the Metabolic Switch. We'll put it in the show notes. It is just absolutely, you'll go, oh, okay, there you go. It, it talks about depleting the liver glycogen and how that happens. Read that. Yeah. So for listeners, I will put a link to that in the show notes. Again, that'll be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 120. Also speaking, like what you were just saying, Jen, and then to Grace's question, I mean, because it's really interesting that like in this other study that the individuals who, you know, just did diet A the whole time, which I read that earlier. I mean, it had a lot of carbs in it. <laughs> it had like pasta. It had like a lot of stuff going on. Every single one of those subjects after doing 21 hours were producing, you know, ketones on their breath, which I mean, that is pretty shocking to me, actually. Yeah, it surprises me. And I wonder, like I said, you know, they were healthy. So they, I think it would be interesting if they repeated that with people who were not metabolically as healthy. What I really, and I'm trying to find these numbers somewhere in the study to compare because I would find this the most interesting, but I'm not finding it right now. I would like to compare their breath ketone levels, like a participant who did the higher carb diet all the way through and then a day of fasting. So like that number compared to the high carb diet and then the high fat diet and then right after that high fat diet, but not far into the fasting yet, like how many ketones were they producing? Because I think that would be a better indicator of comparing ketosis from like diet versus fasting. Like how soon they started to have ketones? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Because the two things I'm comparing is, and I'm trying to like 
paint this clear picture comparing so like low fat quote low fat <laughs> low fat high carb low fat high carb low fat high carb fasting what are we doing with ketones compared to the more low fat diet with carbs and then the lower carbs and then not waiting all the way to fasting just kind of like after that diet so it's hard to explain I wonder, I mean, they all were eating the same amount of food. So it's the fasting that depletes your liver glycogen. It's the needing to run on it. So it wasn't until they were fasting that they all were depleting their liver glycogen. Because that one day, the day six, where they ate all the food, even though it was different food. Yeah, I want to see the numbers because I know they have the numbers because they said they took them. (laughs) That's why I'm trying to find the numbers. But do you see what I'm saying? Yes, exactly. They were eating that day. They ate on day six. And even though they ate different things, just because you're eating a high-fat diet doesn't mean you're also depleting your liver glycogen at the same time if you're getting your energy needs met by the high-fat diet that you're eating. You deplete your liver glycogen as you need it. So if you don't need it, does that make sense? It does. It does. I will throw this out there that... They did note that statistically, so to qualify it as the difference between the 79% fat and the 90% fat diet creating ketones, they did say statistically it wasn't relevant, the difference in the acetone levels, but then they went into detail to say that there basically was a big difference. And you can really see it in the charts when you look at the chart. To go back to Carlene's original question, (laughs) I'm going to reread it for listeners. (laughs) She said, I've been doing IF for almost five months now and have listened and also joined two of the Facebook groups. I've seen a lot of people mention the bad breath when they are in ketosis. I haven't had that issue. Does that mean I haven't been in ketosis? I do mostly 16-8 during the week and even longer on weekends and recently started one meal a day this week. Am I not doing the fast long enough or is it not everyone gets the bad breath problem? So the bad breath, like I said, is assuming that you're interpreting it this way, it would be the acetone from the ketones. So the question is, can you be in ketosis and not be producing acetone in your breath? With this study that we talked about, that was people at the beginning of these approaches to create ketones. And we do know that oftentimes people produce more ketones at the beginning of the protocol. And then when they start using them, they may measure less and less. So I think it's more telling with the breath at the beginning versus later. I mean, Carlene says she's been doing it for five months now and she never had the bad breath problem and she's doing around 16.8. So Jen, given our really lengthy discussion we just had, given Carlene's question, what are your thoughts as far as can you never have, seemingly never have bad breath? I mean, I guess we don't really know. I think it's hard to subjectively measure acetone in the breath versus what you perceive as bad breath, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Not everybody experiences ketosis breath the same way. And some people don't experience it as bad breath or don't think it's bad. So if you're expecting that you're just going to have, quote, bad breath, then you may be looking for something. I mean, I don't feel my ketosis breath as bad breath, personally. It feels like the acetone, like I have kind of a, a metallic slash fingernail polish remover, kind of a alcoholish kind of a taste to my breath. So it's not what I would call bad breath. But not everybody is going to be able to just really taste it. So no, it doesn't mean that you're not having ketosis just because you're not perceiving it in your breath. 
That being said, is it possible that doing 16-8 is not enough to get you into ketosis? Uh-huh. Yep. I do think so. Because if I go on vacation and eat 16-8, kind of a, you know, that's longer than my normal window. If I eat a lot of food, you know, two meals a day over a period of time, I can tell it takes me a few days of being back to my normal routine to get back into ketosis because I have to deplete my glycogen again. I fill it back up. So it is possible that with a 16-8 protocol, you may not be ever depleting your liver glycogen sufficiently to really get into that deep state of ketosis, especially if your weekends are even longer. And by that, I'm assuming you mean your eating window is longer on weekends. It wasn't clear. So just keep that in mind that that is definitely possible. For me, if I did 16-8 every day and had a longer eating window on the weekends, I don't know that I would get into ketosis. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that's really important to point out. And I think it really does, for the breath thing, I I think subjectively measuring it is not the best way to go. I think reading the study that I just read and doing the research that I've done, it seems like, especially if you've never potentially been in a state of ketosis, when you're making that transition into ketosis, you should, in theory, at some point be producing acetone, most likely at some point that is going to enter the breath. How long it stays that way is up for debate, depends on you personally, whether or not you registered it when it happened. So basically, I wouldn't encourage people to look at bad breath as like an instant indicator either way. Like for me, I think the longer you do it, you do become more familiar with it. And like, I'm very similar to Jen. For me, it's a very distinct metallic-y type taste. But yeah, I don't think it's a good blanket statement indicator either way. And then, yeah, and then another takeaway just for like grace, (laughs) you can definitely with IF and carbs get into ketosis. I mean, if you were doing from like what I just read and everything, I mean, don't do this, but if you're eating just 500 calories a day of just carbs, I'm pretty sure you would be entering ketosis just because of, you know, fasting ketosis. So yeah, lots there. I knew we were going to talk about this for a long time. We did. That was a long time. This is the, can you get into ketosis study episode? One other takeaway they did note in the study, and this was something that listeners have asked us a lot about Jen, and I think we've answered, was one of their takeaways. They said that pairing nutritional ketosis with fasting ketosis, so basically doing a keto diet with intermittent fasting was one of the ways to really, really ramp up. If you're looking for the, I think the therapeutic benefits of ketones, that might be a really good way to go. I think that's important. We talked about this, I think last week as well, as far as like the goal is not necessarily just to have as high a ketones as you can. You know, you want to make sure you're burning your fat, get into that. I know that if you eat too much of fat, you're not going to be burning your stored fat. So you might have higher ketones, but that's not the goal unless you are, you know, trying to do it in a therapeutic sense because your brain needs it. So we did have another question in today's lineup that kind of ties into all this. So I think, Jen, if you'd like, we can, should we go ahead and read that one (laughs) since we're talking about all this? This one is from Jennifer and the subject is where's the beef, which made me laugh because are you old enough to remember that Wendy's commercial? Very, very slightly. Okay. I wondered if you were. (laughs) 
<laughs> Where's the beef? Okay. She says, hi, girls. I have been clean IF for just over two months with an overall goal of 10 to 15 pounds of weight loss. Three questions for you. One, I have been doing 25 where I eat lunch and dinner. I wonder if she means 24 or 19.5, but either way, you could do 25, you know, if you... If it changed up in some days, you could do that. But that's what she said. Other than a few pounds in the first two weeks, my weight seems to have stalled. I decided to try just having one large meal like both of you, but my stomach was either hungry enough to eat dinner if I ate a big lunch or it was screaming, where's the beef around 2 p.m. if I waited to eat my large meal at dinner. So my question is, who's in charge? My brain who tells my stomach it will survive till dinner or my stomach who is telling me I really need food? Two, I started keto and IF at the same time. Just curious why you two don't follow keto as well, since it seems like both eating plans are after the same thing, ketosis. And three, since the beginning, I have noticed a change in the taste of my mouth. However, I have never had the metallic taste, but rather a very sweet taste. Is there anything biologically that you have seen as to why different people have one or the other? I just want to make sure it's not an indication that there is any other issue I should have addressed, like prediabetes, etc., I've always had a very strong sweet tooth. Thank you both for all of your hard work and research. So appreciated. All right. So we can go ahead and answer those questions that were related to our prior discussion. So the taste in the mouth, some people do perceive the acetone type taste as a sweet taste. That is a possibility. There is also the possibility that it could be not ketones and it could be you know related to blood sugar. So we're not doctors. We can't say either way. So I would encourage you to, you know, work with a practitioner. You can monitor your blood sugar levels, your ketone levels with devices. That would be my thoughts there. What are your thoughts, Jen? Yeah, I think so. I agree with you. So yeah, the sweet taste might be ketones, but it it could be something else as well. As far as I like her second question, she wants to know why we don't pair keto with the fasting, especially after reading that study where it says it is so effective for producing ketones. But I think, Jen, you summed it up nicely a second ago where you were saying, you know, our goal isn't necessarily ketones all the time. That can be a thing therapeutically for people, especially who have things like epilepsy or brain problems where they really can function much better on ketones. I think for me, I don't want to speak for both of us, but I think I like having carbs in my window and I like having the best of both worlds. So... For me, I've just found that I naturally gravitate to getting ketosis more via the the fasting ketosis route rather than nutritional ketosis, although I do personally follow a slightly lower carb approach than pro- probably the standard American diet. What are your thoughts, Jen? Yeah, that's what I would say as well. I mean, I don't think the goal is 24-7 ketosis, and I think that it's actually good for us to be metabolically flexible and to be able to dip into and out of ketosis. So, you know, I'm not after ketosis, I mean, I like ketosis in the fasted state, but my goal is not, you know, to have all the time ketosis. In fact, I don't sleep well when I'm in ketosis. So I like to turn the ketosis off so my brain can rest and I can sleep at night. (laughs) That's just me. Same here. I wish I could sleep well with ketosis. That would that would be so wonderful because I think I could really just historically throughout my life and in the future, I think I could much more easily do like longer therapeutic fasts for health benefits, but I cannot sleep when I'm... I can't. And that's why if I don't eat enough, like if I don't have enough dinner, if I'm really, really busy and I'm rushing around and I don't have time for my snack and I just have like more of a one plate or 23-1 approach just because of busyness, 
like I have to eat something else or I can't sleep. Yeah, same here. I posted in my Facebook group yesterday and I was like, what does everybody's windows look like? And, you know, some people were saying they do like the later window, but if they get back really late, they'll just, you know, go to bed and make it a longer fast. And I'm, I was just like, I'm so jealous. Like, I wish I could do that because that happens to me a lot where I'll get back really late. I'm not hungry because I'm so in ketosis. But I can't sleep until I eat something. Jealous, jealous, jealous. And then for... Jennifer's first question about who is in charge. So Jen, who is in charge, her brain or her stomach? And what would you recommend for her? Well, your brain is in charge. If you are trying to wait till dinner, you can wait till dinner because hunger is not an emergency. Remind yourself of that, you know, and it depends on you say your stomach is telling you you need food. Well, in what way? Is it growling? Ride that wave. It'll be gone. It'll go away. If you're shaky and nauseous, though, no, (laughs) don't push through that. That's a sign that you really do need to eat. But I actually, you know, have waves of hunger here and there periodically, but it's not like the kind where you have to eat right then and you're going to like, you know, faint or get hangry or whatever. It just comes and goes. So, you know, try that. Really push through. Give yourself a time and just say, today I'm going to push through and see what happens. What I find is there's like a point where you can almost feel like that metabolic switch is being flipped. And up until that point, you know, you're fine, but then you're like all of a sudden like, I need some fuel now. And if you push through that, the other side is where you really get into that state of, okay, now I'm fine. If you never push through that, you never get into that state of ketosis. You know, if every time you're like, well, I really want to eat right now, I'm feeling a little lull, you're never going to get to that glycogen depletion that you're looking for. And I do have a little piece of advice I think that listeners can try for Jennifer specifically and then for anybody else in the situation. Because like for Jennifer, so she's been doing lunch and dinner and she's kind of struggling because if she eats lunch she's still hungry at dinner. But then if she decides to just do dinner, she finds that she's like starving until dinner. If there is a listener who is trying to go from, you know, a two meal a day to a one meal a day type pattern, ask yourself which situation leads to better self-control. Are you more comfortable? Because I do think in the situation, especially if you have weight to lose, that the brain is in charge regardless of what our stomach is telling us. So is your brain, quote, better at saying no in the fasted state and waiting or saying no in the fed state? And that can seem like a weird thing to ponder, but for me, it's revolutionary because like for me, once I start eating, And it's funny because this is two situations where it could arguably be difficult either way. But for some reason, once I start eating, it is very, very hard for me to stop eating. And I just, my brain struggles. Whereas if I'm hungry in the fasted state, that can also be difficult, but I feel more in control. And I can much more easily, like Jim was saying, you know, wait it out. And then oftentimes it does just like pass. And I do wonder if some people are more easily say no after having already eaten, you know, so some people might do better with like doing lunch and then they can be good and they'll have more self-control that way. 
Whereas some people will have more self-control if they do the dinner and they wait until the dinner. Does that make sense? Yes, because we actually see people like that, both groups. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. In the groups, there are people that have a morning window. And there are people who have a lunch window and they feel great doing that. And it actually, there are people that waiting till evening and then once evening comes, they just like go nuts with the food and can't stop because they're just, you know, almost like binging. And I'm not talking about just at first, you know, your first few weeks while your body's adjusting. There are some people that find that never goes away. And if they adjust their window earlier in the day, if they have an early window, they feel so much better. But for me, I'm like you, Melanie. When I have an early window, I've talked about this before, even if I'm like, I'm just going to have this big lunch and then I'm not going to eat anything else, you know, and I may be fine for, you know, eight hours after that lunch, but then eight or 9 p.m. comes around and I'm like, I got to eat something else right now. You know, it's hard for me to not have something else and then to go to bed. So it really is just about what feels right to you. You know, it seems like in this scenario, Jennifer can't skip dinner. She needs to eat dinner or perceives that she can't. I can't not eat dinner. That is just very much like my experience. It's a lot easier, just like Melanie said, it's easier for me to push through during the fast until later than it is for me to not eat once I've already eaten earlier in the day because I'm not in the fasted state anymore. So I don't have that because I've eaten. So here's a suggestion. Right now, it sounds like Jennifer is trying to just only eat one large meal. She either wants to eat a large meal at lunch or a large meal at dinner. So instead, I mean, that's not really what I do, Jennifer. I don't just eat one large meal at dinner. Usually most days I open my window with a snack. Consider it your appetizer. So if your stomach is screaming, where's the beef (laughs) at two o'clock because you're waiting to eat your large meal at dinner, you can still eat your large meal at dinner, but instead have a little snack at two or maybe three. Think of it as your appetizer. And then later you're going to eat your dinner. And that might be just what you need. I think that's a great suggestion. This has been absolutely wonderful. Maybe we should do this more, Jen, like pick apart some of these studies. It's kind of fun. Well, it really is interesting to look at them and see and like, you know, why would they have done it that way? And (laughs) I just, like I said, I come from my elementary science background where I taught fourth graders how to control variables. And then you look at these scientific studies where you see a variable that's so easy and you're like, how'd you miss that one? Like the coffee? Yeah. It's very, very interesting. All right. But so for listeners, a few things before we go. So we are a Himalaya partnered show. What that means is you can listen to us in the Himalaya app where you can also follow all of the other amazing podcasts that you'd like to listen to. And if you follow our show in that app, you will get access to our show 24 hours in advance, which is amazing. I would probably definitely want to check out the show notes for this episode because we did talk about that study. So that'll be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 120. You can also follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast and you can follow us on Twitter. We are the ifpod. All right. Well, anything else from you, Jen, before we go? No, I think that was it. We got into some very interesting discussion today. Yes, we did. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you then. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.